Well, we come now to the time of our giving as we've rejoiced in the gifts of our God, the benefits and blessings of our God. We have now an opportunity to give back a small portion of His many blessings that He's given to us. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Jesus stoops off of a heavenly glorious throne. He he empties himself by addition. He empties himself by taking on weakness, taking on the form of humanity, the form of a man. And he takes on their infirmities and weakness and ultimately death. And he does this so that you in him might become rich according to his grace. And so as he's done that, we recognize that we are rich in Christ. Amen. Amen. Whatever the bank account says, even though we live in a rich country and we're probably all doing pretty well here in, in global standards, we are rich in Christ this day. And so we have a chance now as we worship to give back to him. So if I could ask Mark and Paul to come up and receive his tithes and our offerings. Mark, if you wouldn't mind asking God's blessing. Well, please go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, as we come now to the preaching of God's Word. And as you turn there, just by way of refresher, you know, there's a, there's a, a strange reality that as we preach through books of the Bible, and as we preach through this narrative here, uh, we've taken about a month to study something that happened in probably about 30 minutes. And so because of that, I think it's easy to to, to miss the forest as we focus on the details of the trees. And so, all the way back in the end of Acts chapter 6, we saw a man named Stephen, full of grace and power, who, who was, was opposed, not at first by the religious leaders, but by the people. That was a first for us in the book of Acts. Those of the synagogue of the freedmen opposed him, but they did bring him before the council. And Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin, the same council that Peter and John stood before, the same council that our Lord Jesus Christ stood before. And they bring, they brought some accusations against him, that he was basically seeking to, to do away with Moses, the temple, the law, as if those things had no merit, no purpose any longer. And we've tried to investigate their claims. And we've, saw, we've seen, I believe, that there is some truth to those claims, but they painted those words in a negative light. Now, we ought to see those words in a positive light, that Moses and the law and the temple prefigured and anticipated something far greater, and that something has come, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a greater Moses, as we've seen, that leads his people on a greater exodus. He is the true temple who dwells with the presence of God among the people of God. And Stephen responded to these accusations with a a fairly long sermon. We saw that over the last two weeks. Basically, it was a highlight of the faithfulness of God as he works his will with the patriarchs, beginning with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and into Joseph and Moses and David, very briefly there in his story. And he highlights in all of that the faithfulness of God, but really his sermon climaxed in his rebuke of 
the religious leaders. And as we'll begin to see today, they're not happy with his words. And so that's where we've been. We pick up now the response of the council to Stephen's sermon. So let's read in Acts chapter 7 in verse 54. Verse 54. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city. And stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we are thankful, Lord, to be in your presence today. We're humbled that the God of glory would receive us as your own, would accept us, that you would save us, forgive us, redeem us, grant us atonement as our brother just talked about, Lord, that we are at one with God. We've been reconciled, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And so we give you praise, and we come this day to hear your word, Lord, to, to be instructed and to grow and to be changed and transformed, to have our minds renewed, to walk in grateful, growing obedience, to be sent and convicted and corrected. We, we want you to have your way in our hearts. And so, God, I pray now that this word would go forth by the power and presence of your Spirit. I pray, God, that you would... Give me a great measure of that spirit that I might speak as I ought, that I might be a vessel useful for the master, and that this word might be helpful for your church, that we might leave here today changed as we behold glory in the face of Christ, as we see um, you sustain one of your servants in a most difficult time. And so we commend and commit this time to you, Lord. We pray and ask that you would bless this time, for apart from you we can do nothing. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's things that happen in life, events that seem to, to change the course of history forever. Many dates, many events we could consider. We have some in our own nation. Um, I think of December 7th, 1941. The bombing of Pearl Harbor would change this nation forever. The, 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 the course of history forever. Not just for us even, but for the world as the United States then enters into the Second World War. We think of in more recent times, September 11th, 2001, uh, a day that is seared into our minds, that, that changed the course of this nation. And I believe that the death of Stephen is one of those events. It's one of those things that, that changes a people forever, changes the course of the church Forever. Stephen is, of course, the first martyr in a long line of martyrs that would come after him that would give their lives for the glory of God, for the honor and fame of the name of Jesus Christ. Before this event, we might imagine that the church understood that there was some animosity towards Christians, that it was unpopular to be a Christian, that, that their leaders, the apostles, were, were being harassed for being a Christian, but here one of their own is murdered, executed for his faith, for simply preaching that which was true. That would cause some reverberations, I believe, in the camp, if you will, within the body of Christ. And we'll see that it's this event, as we get in next week in the, in the narrative, it is this event that, that scatters the church, that causes the church to quickly become a global growing phenomenon. They're not just there, sort of hunkered down largely in Judea. But it is the death of Stephen that would spread the church and thus spread the gospel far and wide. 
Of course, Stephen is just the first among many. There are many, many, many men, women, and children in the last 2,000 years that have given their lives for Jesus Christ. The great multitude, their names are lost in history. They have no fame. They have no books written about them. But they valiantly, by the power of the Spirit, gave their lives in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I may not be called to give our lives for Jesus, literally. We may not be called to a martyr's death. Maybe someone is here. But we have been called, all of us as believers, to die. To die to ourselves. To give up our lives for the glory of God, for the sake of His name. We've been called to die to our own prerogative, our own will, our own dreams and desires, our own direction and course of life. And we have been called to live for the will of God as Jesus came to live according to the will of God. And we have been called by the Lord to live for his glory in light of whatever he might call us to endure. And we see then today in Stephen's tragic death and in the tragic death of every martyr that has come after him, strength to be found for the church. We learn today, we see in this event um, that Jesus Christ will provide the necessary strength for his people to walk through all that he would call us to walk through and to endure. I've entitled this message, Faith in the face of fury. Faith in the face of fury. And we see Stephen engaging in that faith, acting out in that faith in three ways. He looks, he lays hold, and he loves his persecutors. He looks, he lays hold, and he loves his persecutors. We see in the text that they don't necessarily love him. As we look back in verse 54, We read that when they heard these things, they were enraged. Now, we want to understand, because it's been a week, what are these things? What is it that he said that sets them off here, that causes them to be so angry? Well, if you look up just in verse 51, you see him there pulling no punches. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. So he accuses them. He brings an accusation against them, a rebuke against them, that you... Your fathers resisted the Holy Spirit because they resisted the messengers that were sent by the Holy Spirit. And what does he say here is the message of those messengers? Well, they testify to the coming of the righteous one. That is Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, Jeremiah, these prophets, well, they preach Christ. They preach the coming of the righteous one. And now the righteous one has come. And these men find themselves opposed to him as well, actually taking his life. Now, they were, they were, they were fine when, pre- when, when Stephen was preaching this message as they in their minds were placing themselves on the side of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the faithful ones of God that had followed Yahweh all of these years. But as soon as Stephen accuses them and places them on the side of the unfaithful apostates, we read that they're filled with rage. The text says they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Now this is a a, a sort of frightening event. This is a, a real hostile situation. This is the full vent of their rage and fury being unleashed. These men have literally become unhinged in this moment. If you have a Bible in the, in the King James tradition, it says there that they were cut to the heart. Now, we heard that same language. It's a different Greek words used uh, in Acts 2.37 as is here. Now, in Acts 2.37, we read they were cut to the heart and they asked Peter, what shall we do? Right? They're cut to the heart and they're convicted of their sin and they want to repent. They know that they're wrong and they admit it. 
We don't want to hear that sort of being cut to the heart here. Here, the accusation has not caused their heart to be softened. It's caused their heart to be solidified, to be hardened like a rock. This enraging, this, this cutting it has caused them to be filled with rage, to be filled with, with murderous hate, as we'll see. And they're ready to break forth. Rage has filled their hearts. They, they, they don't have anything really to say at this point, to respond to Stephen's accusations, but they are filled with malice and hatred. Listen to Matthew Henry. He says, this is malice in perfection. Hell itself broken loose. Men have become incarnate devils. And the serpent's seed is here spitting their venom. Henry sees this as a work of Beelzebub, the, the accusation that was lobbed against the Lord Jesus Christ. They are literally doing the work of the enemy as they seek to destroy the true prophets of God and the true messengers of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that their minds are put to as much torture as the martyrs would be in their bodies. Because upon hearing Stephen's words, they are filled with rage and indignation at Stephen's unanswerable accusations. They have no argument to bring against this man. Henry goes on to say that rejectors of the gospel are actually tormentors to themselves. It is hard to suppress the truth. It takes work. And it is painful to walk in sinful disobedience and rebellion. He says that enmity to God is heart-cutting, but faith and love are heart-healing. And I think we know this as we've come to find faith in Jesus Christ, that the path of disobedience was a path of trouble and ruin. But the path of obedience and faith in Christ is a path of joy and restoration. It seems to me as we, as we maybe carry this event into things that happen in our day, it seems to me that there are times, there are occasions where men's hearts are, are really unleashed and the full vent of their sin is exposed. Seems like certain circumstances bring these things about more than others. I'm thinking of situations like an abortion mill or a pride festival. And I've thought about this. Why is this? Why is there so much vitriol at these events? And I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that the culture has discipled these folks, whether it's the woman that comes to the abortion mill to say, I'm just going to erase the mistake that happened a few weeks back. It's a good thing. Your life matters and the baby is just a clump of cells. And so don't worry about that. Just do your thing. Live your life. Or the, the man or woman that's coming to a pride festival to vent the full fullness of their depravity. They've been discipled by the culture that these things are good that these things are righteous even, that they are virtuous, that it's a good and wholesome thing to say that love is love and to act out on whatever desires your carnal heart has. But the reality is that these men and women as well are made in the image of God. Yes, they're fallen in Adam. Yes, they have a corrupt nature, but they have to work to suppress the truth. Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that, that Gentiles who do not have the law show that the law is written on their heart when they do the very things and they don't do the things the law says. Because we're made in the image of God, man has the law of God stamped upon the heart. And they have to suppress that truth. Have you ever been in a pool with a beach ball and you try to push the beach ball down and maybe you even try to stand on it and you might get there for a minute, and, and it takes a lot of work, right? And as soon as you let off, that thing shoots back up, and it launches out in the air, and you, and you try to suppress it and push it down again. And so they've done this. And the culture has helped them. The culture has says, you're good in your sin. It's okay. You're doing a righteous thing. And so they come to the place where their sin is supposed to be safe, where everyone's going to affirm them in their sin, whether it's the abortion mill, whether it's the pride festival, and now here's Johnny Christian. 
that comes talking about repentance, that comes talking about faith in Christ that is the lawgiver, that has given the law, that has condemned them. And it seems that there's a collision, there's a conflict that happens here in these moments. And they're filled with rage. And, and so often, I don't claim to have all the experience here, but so often it seems that, that people act in a way in these moments that they would not act at any other time, where they just act like fools as their murderous hearts are exposed. You see the look in folks' eyes sometimes, and I, I, I don't... I think it's true that if we were in some dark alley and, and, and they knew that no one was going to ever know, that they'd be happy to, to stomp the life out of you in, the, in that moment at times, where they're filled with murderous rage because here they are to, to experience the fullness of their depravity. And now you've come to, to speak a word of conviction to their hearts. And the religious leaders are here in their place of authority. They're here in that place where they're not questioned. They are the standard. They are the rule. They are the interpreters of the law of God. They're the holy men. And Stephen dares to come into their place and their council and accuse them and rebuke them for the very thing that they see in him. And so they're filled with murderous rage. And what does Stephen do in this difficult hour? I mean, imagine standing before a council. These men have the authority to... to, to Take your life. Now, it needs to be said that the, the charge and the penalty for blasphemy was stoning. This was, a, this was a lawful punishment. Was this a lawful execution? That's another question. But this is a lawful punishment according to God's law in the Old Covenant that a blasphemer could be stoned. And what does Stephen do in this moment? How does he exercise his faith, his faith in the face of fury? Firstly, he looks to Christ. He looks to Christ. Verse 55, he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is an incredible incredible vision given to Stephen, an incredible offer of grace for his servant in this moment where his life is being threatened. Men are looking at him with malice and, and, and violence and murderous intentions, and he looks up, and God pulls back the veil of heaven and gives Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, gives him a glimpse into this heavenly throne room and he sees there the glory of the Lord he sees Jesus there a partaker of the glory of his father I think clearly this is an affirmation of Stephen an affirmation that G, that he is the servant of God an affirmation of his preaching that that Jesus stands with him and what does Stephen do but he then bears witness he then proclaims he says I see and he bears witness to the fact of the resurrected Christ who has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. So we've been hearing this in the preaching of the apostles. They've been declaring this, and now Stephen sees this reality and declares it to the Sanhedrin. I see Jesus in heaven at the right hand of God. I think there's some, there's some implications for our narrative here that are important in this vision. The first is that this vision confirms the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus doesn't need Stephen to confirm his preaching, but it is an affirmation of what Jesus had previously said. There is a time in Matthew 26 where Jesus stands before the same council and faces similar charges of his own. And Jesus made some claims that were just affirmed in Stephen's vision. In Matthew 26 and 64, Jesus references or conflates two Old Testament passages together, angering these men just like Stephen has angered them. And he says, you have said so in verse 64 of Matthew 26, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming from the clouds of heaven. 
Jesus standing there in his humanity, looking like one of us, as he was one of us, says that you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father, of power coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, there's only one time outside of the Gospels that Jesus is called directly the Son of Man. And it's here in this text. An important title. This is the title that Jesus loved to give to himself, how he identified himself. It's used two times in Revelation as one like a Son of Man. But here, clearly, Stephen says, I see the Son of Man. And Jesus used that language there in Matthew 26. And he was bringing about two texts that the Sanhedrin would have certainly known. Let's look at those passages. The first is Daniel chapter 7. An important Christological passage, Daniel chapter 7, in verse 13. Another vision. I saw, Stephen saw, this vision here of Daniel, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, Jesus citing those very words, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. Now, who's the son of man? Jesus. Who's the ancient of days? The father. The son of man comes to the ancient of days, and he is presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one shall not be destroyed so jesus says from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven Hearkening back to Daniel 7, that behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man came to the Ancient of Days. A man was presented to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given a kingdom. To him was given authority. To him was given dominion. And then the other text is, um, I believe the most quoted verse in all the Bible um, is Psalm 110. At least that's what others have said. I haven't done the math myself. But Psalm 110 in verse 1, Psalm 110 in verse 1, this is a psalm of David. And David says, the Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, do you remember a time when Jesus referenced this text? Jesus liked to ask the, the Jews, the religious leaders, questions and sort of puzzle them. And he asked them, who's son is the Messiah. And they said he's David's son, right? He's sort of leading them here. He's baiting them. Whose son is the Messiah? Well, he's David's son. And then so they ask, he asked them, well, why does David say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand? It would have been absurd and unheard of in that day for someone's son, grandson, great-grandson to also be their Lord. Now, we understand how it is that Jesus can be David's son, in David's Lord. Amen. They didn't understand that yet. Jesus knew. And so Yahweh the Father says to Adonai, the Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus explained this to the Sanhedrin as he stood, as Stephen does. And now Stephen has seen this very reality, confirming these prophecies to be true, confirming Jesus' words to be true. Secondly, this vision confirms that the apostles, the Christians, are the true followers of Yahweh. The true Israel, if you will. The true recipients of the promises of God. Something very unique happens in that vision. Maybe you caught it. Something that is sort of unexpected when he looks up and he sees the Father and he sees Jesus. Did you catch it there? He was standing. He was standing. Now, every other time we read that he will be seated at the right hand of God. And scholars have spilled a lot of ink trying to discern why is Jesus standing. We always read about his sitting, and his sitting, his sitting is important. And I believe that it is. We usually read that he would sit. We just read 
that Daniel text, and we saw there that the, the Son of Man will be presented before the Ancient of Days. And, and I see that as a, as, a, as a prophecy, as a picture of Jesus having accomplished the work of redemption, ascending in his now uh, dual natures, man and God, fully man and fully God, ascending as the Son of Man to heaven, and the Father receiving him again, glorifying him, exalting him, giving him the name that is above every name, and saying, well done, my son, sit at my right hand, sit and receive your reward, sit in the place of honor, and reign with me. But now he's standing. Now he's standing, and I believe that he is, he is standing because he's looking upon his servant, seeing his work. He's affirming what Stephen has, has done. Remember last week, we, we heard over and over that God sees, and God knows, and God hears. And here, the Lord Jesus has given Stephen a vision. As he looks up, his life in the hands of his captors in front of him, they're filled with murderous rage. And he sees the Lord Jesus Christ looking down upon him, affirming him, standing on the right side. But I believe Jesus is also standing in judgment over the enemies of the gospel. He stands in judgment over those that have opposed his servant. Their time will come. And this vision then is affirmation that it is Jesus and Peter and John and Stephen that are the ones that have truly followed behind Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it is the Jewish religious establishment at this time that is apostate, that is again resisting the Holy Spirit, that is denying the Messiah, denying the Lord of glory. And thirdly, I, I believe this vision confirms Stephen as a prophet. In the line of the Old Testament, he has, it seems, uh, uh, his, his ministry here is a bit unique. Now, the Bible's not exhaustive. We shouldn't expect that, that we read this story and we, we, we have here every single word that was uttered. We may not have his full sermon. But his preaching is a bit different with what we have than what the apostles say. What was a prophet in the Old Testament? He was a man that was full of the Holy Spirit that performed mighty deeds in the power of God, that spoke and revealed, declared, proclaimed the will of God to the people of God and called them out when they veered from God's covenant, warned them of impending judgment. That's what the prophets did. They were God's prosecuting attorneys. They came to reveal to the people where they had broken the law of God, that they needed to repent or that they would be judged. And we read this of Stephen in Acts chapter 6, that he was full of grace and power, doing great signs and wonders among the people. And he is preaching to them that they have rejected the Messiah, they've resisted the Holy Spirit, just like their fathers. And his ministry feels a bit different in that there is no call to repent. He is lobbying the fact that they will be judged, that they stand as men condemned like their fathers were that did not repents. And so what does Stephen do? In his trouble, as he faces this most difficult situation, he looks to Jesus. He looks to Christ. And Jesus in that moment provides the strength that is necessary to persevere. Jesus in that moment provides assurance and hope that God is with him and that God is for him. And so we too, in our troubles, beloved, we ought to look unto Jesus. We ought to cast our eyes onto the glory of Christ. When your troubles overtake you like the, the waves of the ocean. I know maybe some of you have been landlocked your whole life in Oregon, but for those of you that enjoy the coast or go to the, to the ocean and have ever been out in the waves, maybe you're body surfing or just out there or you're trying to boogie board or something and you get toppled by a wave and you sort of get discombobulated and sometimes you try to go to the sh to up and you go down and you hit your head on the sand and oh, it's the wrong way. Go back up and as soon as you get up and grab, it, grab some air, boom, you're knocked by a wave again. You get that wonderful Pacific Ocean big gulp of salt water down your throat. It's a wonderful thing. 
If you haven't experienced, I, I don't know if you've lived yet. Um, but when troubles overtake you like those waves, you just, you just can't seem to get your head above water. We look to Christ, and he will provide the air, the, 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 the gasp of air that is necessary. He will provide the strength to help us to, to press on in that moment. He will wink down at us, if you will, look down upon us. If your pain and suffering is, is too much to bear, when, when temptation floods and overtakes us and we feel dirty and filthy and weak and don't even want to look to the Lord, He calls us to look afresh to Him. That He will receive us. That He will comfort us. That He will give us the strength that we need to press on. And boys and girls, you can do the same thing. Life is hard sometimes. Is life hard? It is. Sometimes you just want to cry. Sometimes you do. Frustrated, right? Worn out. And little ones, you can look to Jesus. You can call upon him and he'll strengthen you. He'll help you. He'll meet you in your weakness. It's actually in your weakness where his strength is shown to be most strong because it's there that you are dependent upon him, that your pride and your sort of chest puffed out is gone and you're just shriveled up looking for some answer. And God in Christ will provide the strength that is necessary. Now, as the captors, as his oppressors, as they've heard now him reveal this vision, they're even more angry. They're even more filled with rage. And, and this is an incredible scene here. Verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed together at him, or rushed with one mind, or one accord. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is a frightening. Again, this is a, a, a super hostile, just, just evil, wicked moment. Imagine these men. Now, these are the holy men. These are the religious men. These are the shepherds of Israel. They're supposed to be the leaders. They're supposed to be poised. They're supposed to be uh, men of respect, men of self-control. And as they hear Stephen utter these words of Jesus standing at the right hand of God, they literally plug their ears and start screaming and run at him headlong, headfirst. And it says there that they did so of one accord or with one mind. The same Greek phrase we've seen of the church, that the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, that they were all of one mind. So we've seen that in the positive, that there's a beautiful unity in the early church. They've come together as one, loving each other, serving each other, sitting under the apostles' teaching. And we see here there is this evil, wicked unity as these men instinctually, without even discussing it with one another, scream out and violently sprint towards Stephen and lay their hands on him, bring him outside of the city, and they stone him there. This would have been an excruciating way to die. It could last long if they were cruel, but a man would be thrown down, sometimes off of some sort of embankment, so there was some height that the accusers could stand over him and they would crush his body and his skull with large rocks until he expired there. And we see something that Luke sort of slid in there, Luke the author, that there was a young man named Saul holding their garments. Who is this Saul? You can answer. It's Paul. It's not King Saul, reincarnate. It's the Apostle Paul, right? And this is our first introduction to the Apostle Paul. Now, it says he's a young man. In their terms, he would have been somewhere between about 24 to 40 at this time. Um, but it's interesting to note that as a young man, he's already in a role of leadership, of respect. He is holding their garments, overseeing their clothing. He's sort of standing as a senior, if you will, watching over these events. And it's an incredible work of God that the Lord will do. We'll come, of course, to, to Paul's conversion in the next chapter 
or in chapter 9. But it is wonderful to think about just here as we see Paul um, watching over the garments of these men as they, as they murder Stephen. Literally, he's watching an execution. That it would be not just a few years that these same accusations would be brought against Paul. That he would stand before the council. He would stand accused before the religious leaders. And that not that long after, in the span of things, that Paul would as well give his life as Stephen would for the sake of Christ. He would not be stoned to death as as we understand in history and tradition. His head would be removed from his body. Listen to what Paul says about his own testimony in Acts 22. He said, I persecuted this way, that's what he calls the faith, this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Verse 20 of Acts 22, when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. There's no doubt this is the Apostle Paul. In hearty agreement, it says, of their crimes. We even read, if we go on in Acts chapter 8, that Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off women and men and committed them to prison. I mean, we think of, we think of the Taliban doing this sort of thing in Nigeria or in the Middle East, uh, of, of kicking down doors because the people in there are not worshiping the right God. And Paul thought he was doing the Lord's work. Right? He thought he was on the right side. He, he, he thought the Christians were, were blasphemous idolaters that deserved to die. And God got a hold of him. And God changed the direction of his life forever as he knocks him off his horse, as we'll see in Acts chapter 9. This is what God does to men. Amen? He changes men. He, he, he flips them inside out to be a polar opposite of what they once were. Now, I know most of your stories, and I know that we have men and women in, in this room that before Christ were the type of men and women that you would probably keep your distance from. Men and women that you might get a little bit uncomfortable when they came by you in a dark parking lot at night. Men and women that you would have been a little bit skeptical of. Would they have been in your presence? But God had other plans. And God redeems and God delivers and God makes new. What a glorious thing that the Lord does. And He does it simply as we believe in Him. As we believe in faith. How many of you, maybe as an unbeliever, tried to to better yourself in some way? Tried to live a better life? Tried to turn around? Tried to be good? And failed, and failed, and failed. And then you came to this Jesus, and you simply believed in Him. You simply trusted Him, and He began the work. Amen? He began to restore. He began to redeem. He changed your mind. He changed your heart. And He can do that now. If you're here today, I know we're here with with those of us that are here week in and week out, but I would be foolish to assume that everyone in this room wholesale is converted. God can redeem today, friend. God can deliver today. God can remove the chains, the shackles. God can change you. You will never never change yourself in the way that God can. You might might have new practices. You might put down the bottle. You might might stop with the anger. You, You might change your life. But God will change your heart. God will give you new principles, new loves, new desires. And He calls you to come to Him. He calls you to believe in Him. He says this, and you must do this, beloved. He says that you must repent. There is a turning away. There is a laying down. There is a seeing my sin for what it is and dropping it on the floor and turning now to Christ with empty, open hands and embracing all that He is and all that He will do for me. And He'll save any that would do that, even this day, even right now, in this moment. Would you come and believe upon this Christ? And we see here uh, Stephen now as these men are filled with murderous rage, laying their hands on him, taking his life from him literally. What does he do? Secondly, he lays hold. 
he lays hold of God's promises. As they were stoning Stephen, verse 59, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Receive my spirit. All the faith that we might have in the world, all the things that we might say, I'm just looking forward to heaven. I can't wait till to be with Jesus. It's going to be so much better when I'm in glory with Christ. No more sin. I can't wait. That's my joy. That's my delight. I'm longing for that day. All of those words don't amount to much if they don't exist when we need them most. We can say every day, I look forward to heaven. I look forward to being with God. But will we believe that when death comes knocking? When it is not just a distant, abstract thought, but an imminent, concrete truth, as it is here for Stephen. Will I find hope in that moment when my life is being stripped away from me that I will soon be with Jesus? Will I find then the promises of the gospel to be as sweet as I said they were when I was in good health? Will I then find joy in leaving this life and going to be with Christ? As death is imminent for Stephen, he he lays hold of the promises of the gospel. I love his words because there's so much faith packed in those words. This is a a testimony to the faith of Stephen. He believes as his life is being beaten out of him, literally. He believes that Jesus hears his prayer. He believes in that moment that Jesus will receive his soul when it leaves his body. He believes that the promises of the gospel are true for him. That though he be a sinner, he can be accepted by a holy God. Through his son. He believes in that moment that because he trusted in the God of promise, the promises of God will bring him into God's presence. He believes there as he cries out, Lord Jesus, receive me, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That God is waiting to receive his servants when they die, when they pass from this life to the next. He believes there in that moment. That there is hope beyond this temporal, physical existence. That death is not the end. Death is a door into glory. Death is a door into something far greater. He believes with this prayer that he would literally that day be with the Jesus that he had just laid his eyes upon in heaven. What does Stephen do, beloved? In the darkest and probably, I'm assuming here, probably most frightening moment in his life, he believes God. He believes in the promises of God that have been taught to him, preached to him, that he's read in the Word. And what about us? How can we do the same? I think it first begins to believe the promises of God. We have to know the promises of God. If we want these promises to have any effect, to be a benefit to us, to be a help to us, we have to know them. Promises, like if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, new has come. Promise, like God, did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. The promise that Jesus will come back in the same way that he was seen going into heaven. The promise that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. That when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. The promise that the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against Him, not once but every day, even as Christians. The promise that we can be strong and we can be courageous because He will never leave us nor forsake us. The promise that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. 
the promise that He Himself is our peace. The promise that you, Christian, were washed, you, Christian, were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of our God. The promise that you're now a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, purchased by God to declare His excellencies. The promise that He will be a refuge, a strength, a shelter, a strong tower, that He will gather you in His wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks. That's only, what, ten? I pulled these from a list of 365 promises, all Bible verses. I'd be happy to pass that along if you're interested. Let me know. We need to know these promises so that we can recall them, so that we can hope in them. And secondly, believe and lay hold of them in time of need. Know them and believe and lay hold of them in time of need. All of these precious promises of God are of no account, no profit. They are moot if they're not hoped in when we need them most. If I say that God is my refuge, God is my strength, God is my shelter, God is my helper, God is the lifter of my head. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because God is with me. I can say that. But if when I'm really stressed and really anxious, I actually turn to ice cream or wine, or pizza, or binge out on television, whatever I do for escape, then I've sought another helper. I've sought another refuge. I've sought peace in something other than the Prince of Peace. And when all was against Stephen, he believed God. He believed what God had said to him in his word. He looked to the only one that would never and could never let him down. So lay hold, beloved, of those precious promises of God. Preach them to yourself in time of distress. Preach them to yourself in time of prosperity so that they're there in time of distress. Pray them back to God in faith, believing, Lord, your word is true. I believe this for myself. Teach them diligently to your children. Pass them on to the coming generation that they might pass them down to their children. And thirdly, as Stephen exercises his faith in the face of fury, we see that he loves his persecutors. He loves his persecutors. Falling, verse 60, to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin again. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now, how does a man look at his own murderer and pray for God there in that moment to show mercy? It's an incredible work of God. Remember, he had just seen a vision of Christ standing, I believe, in judgment over these men. And his dying breath is not, Lord, give them what is their due. His dying breath is, have mercy upon their souls. 20... 15, there was a man who walked into a church in South Carolina. You probably remember the story. And it was a historic black church in Charleston, I believe. And these folks welcomed him into the Bible study. And he sat in the Bible study for 45 minutes as they studied the Word. And as they bowed their heads to pray, he opened fire on these saints, let off 77 rounds, killing nine, left some of them alive, and told them that he was leaving them alive intentionally to tell the story. And some of the victims of the family stood in court at his, at his sentencing and offered forgiveness and told this man, if you would allow us, we'd love to come to the prison and pray with you. How does that happen? How does that happen? I think there's some things we want to have in our mind. Firstly, the Lord says that vengeance is of the Lord. Vengeance is of the Lord. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think sometimes we like to fancy ourselves as prophets of God pronouncing judgment upon God's enemies. Now I have to be honest, some of those difficult moments that I mentioned earlier in our day when God's enemies are spitting in your face and filled with anger and speaking disgusting, blasphemous things about Jesus Christ. Mercy is not always the first thing in my mind. It's, it's certainly a work of God's grace to see Stephen and to see these saints loving. But we have to recognize that vengeance is God's. It's His work. Wrath is His. We're called, Paul says, to overcome evil with good. To love them through their evil. That that good, that love might overpower the hatred. Secondly, our desire ought to be the conversion of Christ's enemies. The conversion of Christ's enemies. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5.10. If while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. I think we have to get this right about ourselves to understand how we can love God's enemies. We were enemies of God and we were reconciled to God. The one that wants every person that does evil or opposes God's will to be sent directly to hell is the one that has little understanding of his own depraved heart and the incredible grace of God that has saved him and delivered him from that wicked heart. You know, we often think it is amazing that God bears with all those wicked people out there when we ought to think it is amazing that God saved a sinner, that God reconciled me, that God delivered me, that he had favor upon me. The words of the Apostle Paul ought to ring in our ears, such were some of you. And he doesn't say, but, but, but you fixed yourself. You had it right. You did the right thing. No, he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God did that. God saved you and God changed you. So we ought to desire the conversion of Christ's enemies. Thirdly, thirdly, God is pleased to answer this prayer. God is pleased to answer this prayer. It's a glorious thing that we will soon see that this murderous man, Saul, that is ravaging the church of Jesus Christ will be converted. And used mightily by the Lord for his own purpose. Will suffer greatly for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm assuming here, this is conjecture. But I would imagine that this prayer for Stephen felt like a shot in the dark. Not because God is not willing or able. But because these men are so filled with rage and violence and anger and hatred. And yet God was willing and able to save. So be encouraged, beloved, as you pray for those that seem so distant from God, so hardened, so opposed to the gospel. Be encouraged that God can and God does remove those stony hearts in His time. He is willing and He is able. So how shall we respond? <coughs> Very briefly, firstly, look unto Christ. When things are most difficult, when things are most challenging, when life is most Frustrating. Whatever God has called us to do, He will provide the needed strength. He will provide the provision that you need in that moment to persevere. He will look down and smile upon you that you might have strength to press on. Secondly, lay hold of His promises. Beloved, believe God for the things that He has promised. Go to God, not the escape when life has hit its limits. And He will sustain and He will provide the necessary grace. And thirdly, love your enemies. Vengeance is not ours, it is God's. It doesn't mean that, that we, 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 we disregard justice and the penalty of people's actions. 
But vengeance is the Lord's. We want to take the lead of our master who turned the other cheek, who opened not his mouth, who was willing to be scorned and to love those who persecuted him. He knew that there were those in the crowd that said crucify him that soon would be his own. And he shed his blood on their behalf. And may we hear, as we hear the venomous, wicked words that we hear in our culture, isn't, you don't have to go far to hear it on the news, see the wickedness. May we hear in the venom of, of the words of Christ's enemies, may we hear our own voice before God redeemed us. May we hear our own tongues and be reminded that such were some of us, but God. Amen. But God. Let's pray.